Welcome, TTB community. I am Bob Demena, and here with me, as always, is the very punctilious Elliot Shipley. Do you know what that is? Punctilious, yes. That, that that is. It sounds like punctual. Does it have anything to do with time? It, well, no. <laughs> it says, showing great attention to detail or correct behavior. Okay, okay. So, I guess, sort of, you can see the correlation between punctual and punctilious, right? Just okay. being correct being on top of things showing attention to detail so you can see the so i guess maybe punk parallels there's the the prefix punk maybe has this whatever that means in latin is where they punked yeah yeah look at us look (laughs) at us tv show right we should start a phonetics uh podcast next no we shouldn't there are there are definitely experts that are way better at it Yeah, we'll leave it to them. I can, I, I can barely pronounce the words I know. So uh, who, who do we have today? Well, today's guest is Mag Diamond, and she's the author of Bowing to Elephants, which is a travel memoir from her. She is probably our most experienced travel guest that we've had, and she proves that age is nothing but a number. And she discusses how her childhood molded her into the person that she is and her passion for travel And then we talk about how travel has shaped who she has become. And she, the the conversation was really interesting. I think she's definitely the oldest guest we've had on the show when typically a lot of our guests are digital, young digital nomads. Uh, She kind of is one of the first of the, not digital nomads, but nomads in general. And our conversation was very enlightening and very, it had a lot of deep, emotions tied to it and she shared a lot about her life story and it was it was really an honor to talk with her yeah so before we get into the the conversation very briefly i want to just run through what we have going on behind the scenes the travelers blueprint community group private facebook group we're very active there if you want to speak to us directly probably the best place to do it and we we provide information on the podcast and things like that, sort of behind-the-scene questions or more intimate questions to ask you regarding our guest. You can subscribe anywhere you're listening to this, whether it's YouTube, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts. Just give us a subscribe, and if you really like us, give us a rating. It goes a long way in helping us get better guests. Our website is pumped full of content. We have the cheat sheet that you get for free when you sign up for the newsletter. We have consulting services that I will virtually sit down with you one-on-one and go through the intricate details of your trip to make sure you have the most efficient trip possible. And you will. You will. (laughs) Guaranteed. (laughs) Guaranteed. Guaranteed. So we have uh, become your own travel agent videos. They're going to be courses that we're going to be providing you that allow you to plan your own trip. Essentially, what I provide you in the consulting service, the videos are going to help you be able to do that on your own. And those are in production. They should be coming out very soon. The We have a promote your, I'm sorry, we have a uh, travel around table series where it's six people that come on the I'm sorry, four people that come on the podcast, six people total, including Elliot and myself. And we break down different topics. We have a group discussion on those topics. They've been very fun to record. They've been very informative, and we we really like that series so far. Uh, and then you know we're everywhere: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. Follow us, give us a follow. You know, say hello. And uh, that's it. That's it. So, without further introduction, please give it up for our next guest, Mag Diamond. 
Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Mag, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me. Glad to be here. Today, we would love to talk to you about your latest book that was released in September of 2019, Bowing to Elephants. You, This is your first book that you've ever written, and you are in your 70s, right? That's right. And this is a compilation of essays that you've written over your life from different journals that you've kind of compiled and joined into a story that kind of knits together your whole being and travel as a journey through life, but also geographically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell us about it a little bit. What, why write it now? <laughs> All right. I, I could be a, I could be a little bit of a smart ass and say, well, why not? Uh, I mean, you know, but when you've, when you've played with writing all your life, uh, which I have, I've been recording experience since I was about 11 years old, uh, keeping journals and so on, uh, and and imagining that you would be a published writer one day, and uh, and and then you you know you go on your way and you do all these various things, you know, like you 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 get married, you have children, you 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 go to college, you teach, you and and you still write and you're still writing and. Um, and then there's a certain point at which you realize that um, if you're going to create a book, um, which you feel would be a worthy book, uh, you better get to it. Because um, when you're in your 60s and staring at your 70s, uh, you know you don't have an infinite amount of time left. So it's like, okay, it's it's time to do it. So that's sort of that was sort of the the you know trajectory you know of the kind of the the birthing of the thing ultimately, but, but I've been doing it all along and it's just a matter of making it happen into a form that I could, you know, convince somebody to publish. Right. Well, and, and you were um, writing down your travels as you did it, correct? You had travel journals that you were able to use to compile the book. Right. I kept, you? I kept notebooks every time I went anywhere yeah. I always uh, bought, you know, a new notebook. I mean, I have a, an obscene number of notebooks that have, you know, four or five pages written in them, and then I did, then I stopped and turned away from it. But but every time I went on a trip, I I sort of vowed to document the trip. So I would do a day by day, you know, uh, reporting uh, uh, of my experience because I knew that I wouldn't be able to remember stuff, and you know, because I'm a I. Uh, I keep busy doing, I mean, I do a lot of different things when I travel. I, I do a lot of museum stuff. I do a lot of eating out because I love food so much. Uh, and I do a lot of, you know, visiting obscure places and going into churches that that look interesting. And so I wanted to be sure that I had, you know, all that kind of recorded um, because I guess I felt that, you know, one day that would be useful, useful for me down the line. Uh, and I also took photographs. That's another thing I, I generally did along with keeping the journal. Yeah. So that was helpful too. In your book, you mentioned something interesting about memory. And I've, it's something that I've always been interested about with memories. And the fact that they're so fallible and your memories change as you grow older. And journals are a great way to keep those memories true. Because 
I have not written in a journal. I mean, I have maybe two or three days of writing from a journal as part of like school assignments in when I was still in single digits. And I look back on those and I'm like, oh, wow, that was really fun. I don't even remember that. But then I think about other aspects of my life where I haven't written in a journal. And I think, is this memory real or is this kind of pieced together from what people have told me or part of my imagination mixed with reality? Well, that's what, that's what kind of stinks about taking pictures and not, not recording it in a journal. It's sort of like the difference between a movie and the book. The movie is never as good as the book, right? Because the book is just such, so much more descriptive. You, you account for what you're, what's going through your mind. Uh, you're, as you taste the meal, as you smell it, you know, the sounds that are around you. Uh, my, I, I went on a seven, two week honeymoon with my wife and we, it was the first time we recorded our, uh, any travels in a journal. And I've gone back a few times and looked at it. And the way we did it was I would write a day, she would write a day, I would write a day. And it, it surpassed anything we could possibly do with pictures because now I can go back and it's both of it's, it's our honeymoon through both of both of our perspectives and there's joking in it. There's sort of like back and forth in the writing where one of us may have made the other one late and it's just really beautiful to read or like you read how we felt. And especially, you know, on your honeymoon when it's just your, your emotions are running high. It's such a, I, I could not recommend recording your travels. Uh, in a journal. I mean, maybe, maybe your entire life, really. I know a lot of people do that. I haven't done that. Maybe I would like it, but I couldn't recommend doing it for at least your travels uh, enough based on my experiences. Well, I know a lot of people that, that do that when they travel uh, and they don't do it any other time. And, um, and it's because when you go on a trip, you are, you're bombarded with, with experiences. You really are. And, and there's no way you're ever going to be able to retain all that so though it's kind of wonderful to be able to record it and and I just what I try to do at the end of the day is just make sure I've covered the things that stood out for me it's not like I'm going to write about every single thing I did during that day but it's really about the things that stood out you know uh, whether it was this you know wedding couple in, in Venice in the middle of winter who are posing for photographs on San Marco Square. I mean, that was an astonishing thing to see. And uh, and it was like a painting and it was it was just like this uh, amazing event. And I um, I don't imagine that I would have forgotten it, but but it was really important for me to to write that one out. And or sometimes writing about the food that you're having, because maybe the food triggers something really kind of internal, like something emotional in you. It makes you feel really good, you know, to have that dish of pasta or whatever it is. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's great to preserve that because like, you know, it, you're not going to remember it later. You know, you're just not. No. Yeah. The memory is, is really weird. So I kind of have this unscientific <laughs> theory that your memory is, is, it's sort of like a like a hard drive and once you fill it up you start to erase things and like like and it doesn't necessarily need to be like the earliest memory but just like random things like you just can't keep everything in there uh and and a good example is last night i watched a world war one movie and just a few years ago when i was in college 
I could tell you exactly how World War One started, you know, which countries were involved, and I really understood it. And now, years later, I'm watching this, and I just, and I couldn't remember, you know, I, I remember the, the overall picture, but I couldn't remember the details like I used to. And I'm like, you know, I've learned a lot over the past few years. Maybe <laughs> my mind just had to push that out to make room for this new stuff, but that's yeah. sort of like a... Was it 1917? Uh, I, I watched 1917 last night. Very good movie. It was actually an incredible yeah, one movie. I, I, it's on my list. I haven't seen it. On my very list good. too. Very, very, very good. Highly recommend it. Yeah, there's yeah, no I, no war in it. I think that I think that the uh, I think that's an interesting analogy you're making, and and I think that it's true that when I certainly uh, when I put that book together and I was doing my uh, detours back into the past, back into the distant past of my life of my childhood. Um, that's where I was in that that's where I was in much more vulnerable territory because uh, I was relying on on the memory and on the you know I didn't have journals from when I was a six and seven year old or eight year old or whatever like that so I was relying on on my own you know memory carried forward which of course was in was, was partially um informed by stories that people told me of what happened, you know, during certain times. So that's why you say memory is imperfect, you know, and any person that writes a memoir, you know, if they think they're going to tap into the memory and make it really solid and, you know, super sharp, accurate and this and that, I mean, they're, they're fooling themselves because you can't. And so you take, you take what you can remember and you use it to the best of your, you know, sensibilities and your and your intelligence and you you know you you build on it and and then you can develop a scene or you know a, a situation that you can describe uh, but it's uh but for a while it really bothered me because I wanted to be able to remember more you know uh, uh, again of childhood mm-hmm. and yeah. I thought no look I've lived a long life I'm 70 whatever I mean the chances of of you know holding on to stuff that happened to me when I was seven years old, uh, pretty slim. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I was used to be envious of people who could remember all these things from childhood. And then I sort of had to give up on that. I said, some people are able to zero in on certain events of their childhood and, and talk to you about it as though it's crystal clear, you know, to them and, and, uh, super detailed. Um, but most people can't, most people can't do that. And so you really have to rely on your sensibility and your and the powers of invention. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of fun, actually, when you get into it, because you just you know, the personalities that are involved and you and you and you dig back into the experience and then you can kind of embellish from there. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was a tricky piece of the journey that, you know, making that stuff really uh, come alive. Yeah. A big part of your journal and your journey throughout life was your mother. And unlike a lot of people that traveled the world and traveled at a young age, you weren't a military brat. Your mother was just very involved in art and music. And you moved to Italy for a time, then back to San Francisco and a few other places in between. Um, how how did that impact you as a young adult because you've been you'd been traveling by the time you were 18 for roughly 10 years 
Well, we were in Europe for um, we were in Europe for three years from the time I was eleven. I came. We came back when I was fourteen. Uh, then I finished up high school. I did one year in San Francisco of high school, and then I did two more years in New York. My mother decided to move to New York, so we moved from San Francisco to New York. And then I, and then from New York, I moved. I went to college in Ohio. So yeah, I mean, I, um, and I needed to get away from my mother. You know, I, I, it would have been wiser for me probably not to go right to college, but uh, she and I had such a a really trying relationship um, that I needed to get out of her sphere. And um, so I went off to Ohio, which I knew nothing about. It was the mid, middle of the country. I mean, I was raised on 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 the West Coast. You know? No one knows anything about Ohio, so don't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we just but, lost our Ohio uh, you know, audience. There, 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 <laughs> <laughs> so I've been a bit. Of, I mean, that's a bit of trap bopping around. You know, I was used to moving around. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were in Italy, we moved. We moved. You know, we moved from Florence to Rome, and then in Rome, we moved another time my mother was a very restless character and I guess, you know, I just was conditioned to that. Um, and as a young married person, I got married very young and I wanted immediately to go off and travel, you know, even though I had a child, I, I figured out how we could do it and, and, and got my husband interested in it. And so we started traveling, you know, when we hadn't been married maybe five years and we were, you know, and I, we, I figured out that we were going to go to Europe and go to do Ireland and England and that sort of thing. So um, I wanted to keep moving, I think, you know? Yeah. So although your relationship with your mother was somewhat tumultuous, the travel still stuck with you and you still enjoyed it. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing more, you know, kind of stimulating and distracting than traveling, you know, that you, and if you are having a difficult time of your in your life, traveling can take your mind away from that and you can go off and ex- explore something new and different. I did that much later in my life after I, after I uh, divorced my husband and went off on another adventure with another person. I did a ton of traveling then. Uh, I didn't have kids to take care of. I didn't have any responsibilities. And I just, uh, and I was living with somebody who wanted to travel like crazy too. So we just did it. But we had a very fraught, we had a very strange and fraught relationship. And I found that the traveling kept me uh, from thinking about how I was in a very unsatisfactory relationship. Mm. So it was a little bit of like an escape, you know, an escape thing to do. Yeah. Right. So uh, something that I, I do want to get into are uh, your experiences and your transition to uh, mindfulness and Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So as we sort of talked about before uh, we started recording, mindfulness and meditation is something that I've been trying to get into, actually, uh, the past few weeks. So it's still very new to me. It's something that uh, I think can be very beneficial to I mean, it, it, it will be very beneficial to my mind and, and kind of relaxing my body. And so my plan is to sort of work out in the morning and then take 
the last 10 minutes before I go jump in the shower to just close my eyes and meditate. And, uh, you know, you as being an experienced uh, meditator, and I, I actually did uh, a sign up for your program too, 21 oh, day program. I did. I signed up for it. Yeah. yeah. So um, I'm looking forward to starting that, but can you just, I, I guess, first uh, explain to me the transition that you went through in during your travels that you realized that this was something that this was profound and then maybe kind of explain what it means to you today and, and how you're keeping up with it. Well, it, it, it didn't happen to me when I was traveling. I mean, the, 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 you know, the transition into that choosing that kind of life didn't happen when I was traveling. It really, it really didn't. It happened when I was living in Northern New Mexico and uh, I was living with this uh, problematic character that I just referred to. Uh, and um, I was really very, I had left my marriage. I'd been married for a long time for 25 years. Uh, I left my family behind and, you know, in California, uh, I'd started this whole new life, uh, some of which was satisfactory. I mean, and I was, I had a teaching career and that uh, teaching uh, writing actually to students, but um, I was really unhappy. I, I was, I felt that I had made a terrible mistake by, you know, just trashing my marriage. I felt like I was with a person who had no capacity to, to, to have, to love or to respect. And I was wondering like crazy how I was going to extricate myself from this. Uh, And I started working with a woman who did, who did body work. uh, And she was also a Buddhist. um, And she told me something that she noticed in me. She said that she saw that I carried a lot of suffering. And, um, and I told her she was right that I was, you know, I was deeply unhappy. And, um, despite all my sort of success on the, on the outside, I looked very successful on the outside and, and probably a lot of people didn't think I was unhappy, but in any case, um, I, I told her that I was, that I was suffering. And she said, you know, if you trying, you know, sitting meditation, might be a really wonderful thing for you. And then uh, I said, oh, no, I can't meditate. You know, I, meditation's too hard. I have to shut my mouth for too long. I mean, I have to be quiet. And and uh, we all know that one way we cope with difficulty is by keeping ourselves distracted and busy. Um, but, you know, she she told me in a way that made me believe that I could do it. And I found a meditation group that I could go to, a sitting group. And I went there. Um, I walked in one evening to this group and there must have been about six people sitting there and it was like amazingly peaceful and I sat down and I was able to calm myself right away and after I spent the hour, two hours there with these people I realized that I had dropped into something that was really profound and I felt like I'd found a home for myself and um, so I just kept going to to group sittings i kept uh, attending those sittings and i and i meditated on my own and i realized that i felt better about myself uh it didn't solve some of my problems but at least it allowed me to cope uh with the with the kind of the the, the, the ache in my heart uh so yeah i became a regular and um and then eventually uh i 
spiritual retreats where you are silent for, you know, a week at a time or or two weeks at a time or whatever it is. And um, and I was able to really see clearly that I was a worthwhile person. I was able to kind of have love for myself that I had never found. Uh, I was able to understand that suffering is not something that you can push away by, you know, drinking too much or going on lots of trips. It's really not going to work. The suffering keeps coming in our lives and uninvited, of course, you know. And so your job as a meditator is to just allow it to be there and allow this the difficulty to be there and to accept it. Because as you accept it, it 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 fades away. It it, you know, part of the the core of suffering is when you push back against it and resist it and say, no, 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 I'm not going to be unhappy. No, 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 no. No, allow yourself to be unhappy and allow yourself to feel sad. Allow yourself to also feel delight and joy, you know, but, but it's the thing that people have difficulty with is the suffering part. Yeah. We, we sort of live in a world where you're supposed to frown upon emotions like anger and sadness and something that I I think this is funny, but part of, you know, raising a a child, which I'm doing, I have a two-year-old is teaching them to understand their emotions. So as they feel something and it might be sadness or anger, they obviously, they know, they, they know they feel something, but they don't know what it is. And so it's your job as a parent to define it for them. You need to say what you're feeling is this because of this, and it helps them absorb that feeling and understand you know just just put you know context to it and it helps them grow and it's very important to do that but as you get older you're then told you know your mental health is not a priority or you know it's it's you need to push it to the back and you shouldn't deal with it and things like that and uh I mean, yeah to sit down and 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 like you said it's all about just being able to understand it and once you understand something, I don't know, it's much easier to figure out how and when to deal with it rather than just saying, you know what? Nope. I don't have time. I don't have time to be angry. I got to do this. I got to get this done. <laughs> you know, and a lot of people do that. I do that all, all the time. <laughs> I do it all the time. And it's something that I'm really trying to, to change about myself. Um, so, so like I, the Buddha called it waking up. Let me, I want to add a little something because this is kind of important. The Buddha was you know, called the, uh, the awakened one uh, by many people. And this thing about accepting the difficulties, the darkness, the sadness, the, the anger, it's, 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 it's being, it's becoming conscious. It's becoming conscious of what is really going on and, and what is right before you. And, you know, it could be pain in your body and it could be agitation in your mind. It could be, you know, any number of things, irritation at noises that go on outside your environment or whatever. Um, But but your job is to just pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. That's why, you you know, it's a moment by moment thing. And when you're sitting silently, you are paying attention to all the experiences that are coming to you. That's Yeah. So that's sort of picking up to it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, so that's something that I think just people in general need to take in. Like an example I've heard is, I, I, so this is something that I'm guilty of. Anytime I have any downtime, if I have 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I'm sitting at the dentist's office waiting to get called back or whatever it is. 
I automatically go in my pocket, I take out my phone and I kill the time. Whether I waste it on social media or I'm reading news or I'm going through my emails, right. I, I have to do something. How can I, how can I fill this 15 minutes? And I know it, it, you, you don't automatically think like, take the 15 minutes and just sit <laughs> and just sit with your own thoughts. Um, go back on what you have going on in your life. Go through your files, you know, your internal files and, and sift through and make sure everything's in order and, and calm yourself down. You don't have to fill every waking minute of every day. And so that's, that's what's sort of driven me to, to meditation. And I do, I'm really excited to get into this. And I'm glad, glad for you, you know, and, and just just to say something else about that, it's, you're not really filling your time. You're really wasting your time because, (laughs) you know, your time is, is not, it, it, you know, you don't benefit from, I mean, I've been guilty of all of that that you're talking about and I'm a lot older than you are, but, but these devices are seductive, you know, and uh, I used to take the, my iPhone when I walked the dog and I'd get to the park and I'd sit on the park bench and then I'd look at my iPhone instead of looking around at the things that were going on in the park. So, you know, everybody does it because it, you know, we're, we're, we're a society that where everybody is, stimulating themselves you know 24 7 and and to sit in in on a park bench or uh just at your kitchen table and just sit and be is kind of alien foreign these days because people feel like you've got to be doing something right yeah but it's but it is way it's wasting your consciousness because when you're going through your emails and looking at your news or doing your social media you know you're not really making anything happen you're not really learning anything really you know you're, you're entertaining yourself yeah what you yeah doing. yeah yeah that, that's a good point <laughs> yeah it's you know i'm going to take baby steps i'm not i'm definitely not going to dive into it but yeah i, I and and so going back to mindfulness and as it relates to travel mm-hmm. travel is sort of to me in its own way a form of meditation you know you're going out and you're having these experiences and they're profound and you're learning uh i don't know i think travel sort of has helped me snowball into being more in tune with myself and then therefore allowing me to be a better future meditator <laughs> does that make sense is that yeah and, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> i mean travel is a moment by moment experience okay and meditation is a moment by moment experience as well uh and the key to, to having it work for you in travel is that you have to slow yourself down enough you can't be racing through your day or through your week I mean, some people travel in very crazy ways, I think. But if you slow yourself down enough, you can have the moment by moment experience. You know, you can get up in the morning and you can, you know, look at the sun coming in your window and then you can get yourself dressed and go have your breakfast and then you can go out on your day and, and you can be noticing all these things and registering them. And and um and if you're moving fast, if you're saying to yourself, Oh, well, I have to get to three museums today. Plus, I have to go shopping and I have to do this. Um, then, then you're not having the moment by moment experience. You're on that sort of on that trajectory where you're you're headed toward a goal, 
but really what the what is the goal you know the is the goal the end of the day where you you can say to yourself i've done the three museums and i've gone shopping and i've done all these good things i've checked all those things off my list because you know some people travel like that they they decide that they have to accomplish these things i think that's yeah, i mean i i am guilty of that uh, in a lot of ways <laughs> the the ways that i yeah i mean well the ways that i travel uh, are determined by what there is to see something that i was actually just telling elliot yesterday is that this podcast and speaking to travelers of all different types of all different nationalities is that i've learned that there are deeper ways to travel and i'm looking forward to trying those out in the future <clears throat> but i definitely in the past always made it a point it was always you know what architecture food uh and, and that was it. Like I needed to accomplish certain tasks and it was never just go and feel and understand and exist. And so now that's where my, my mindset as I travel is, is going to be. And so that's, that's a question I have for you. You know, when you're going to these really interesting countries like Bhutan, um, it, Bhutan fascinates me. You know, are you going there with, how do you approach that? Because you know you're going there with the mindset of of experiencing things on a deeper level. But then I feel like if you were to go there and prioritize that too much, it takes away from it too. Like it, there's like this like quick catch 22, right? So, so how do you approach travel to ensure that you get what you want out of it, which is a meaningful, deep experience? Well, you know, when I go to, I was just thinking about this earlier. Um, I was thinking about the sort of the things in my heart and in my mind and, and in my experience that, that take me to certain places. Um, so when I went to Bhutan, I was driven by really one thing only. I wanted to learn about how Buddhist practice is, is woven into the way of life there. It's an it's a it's a Buddhist country through and through that the Bhutan. It is. Um, I mean, I'd heard about this. I'd read about it or, you know, and so on. But I wanted to experience that. I wanted to kind of see that as it as it manifested. And so I had a private guide and I um, I told him what I wanted to do. I said, you know, I don't want to I'm not going to trek in the mountains because that's not what I do. You know, plenty of people go to Bhutan and they go trekking because of the mountains being so glorious and everything. Mm -hmm. I said, I want to go to monasteries and, and, and temples and I want to look at, at Buddhism in this country. I want to look at it as, 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 as a practice which is, is the way of life. I want you to show me. I said to him, I want you to show me this. And it was a, it was a great mixing of personalities because it turned out this young man who was my guide he had once been a monk. He had once signed on to be a monk and, and then realized that it was too rigorous and too demanding to, for him. And he gave it up. But um, but he had a very affectionate feeling for the monastic life and for the um, and for all the people involved in the spiritual uh, teachings and, you know, in the spiritual world. So so he took me to all these different places and we did road trips where we got in the car and we went to certain villages. and. And and we saw the sites that were geographic, and that was all wonderful. 
but we we but wherever we went it was very kind of like very kind of conscious and mindful and we were just we would have conversations with people or he would talk to people and then translate for me you know i'd ask questions and he'd uh um and we'd go sit in a room with the monks who were prostrating themselves and praying and he would explain to me that this wonderful dent in the in the wooden floor this beautiful wooden floor was 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 had this indentation from people prostrating themselves over hundreds of years wow affected the wood in the floor um and talk to me about all the the all the little bits and pieces of the ritual and everything like that and so it was um so anyway i went with that you know that was my intention and uh, i put myself in the hands because when you go to bhutan you can't travel independently they don't allow that you have to travel with a bhutanese person they control it, which is good. Because then, there, yeah. isn't there a daily visa or a daily cost associated with it too? Yeah, there is a cost, and it's it's not cheap. But um, but it's the government really has has been very conscious of their. I mean, or very adamantly, you know, um, has decided they're limiting the people that come into the country. They're limiting the amount of time that people stay, um, and they are. Um, and they're watching over them. I mean, you know, they're not watching over them 24 hours a day, but I mean, they're, you're under the wing of this, of a person or, yeah. or maybe a group, a, a couple of, couple of people who are, who are responsible for your visit. Yeah. And it's all to preserve the culture. Right. Yeah. And it's totally like a happy, I mean, you've heard of the, the gross national happiness concept. I mean, that's, this is a happy place. And and even the people as poor as they look, they're happy. They're they're and there are no police there are no police force in Bhutan. There's no yeah. cops. Really? Yeah. Right. I there's, find that so interesting. There's no army. There's no army. <clears throat> Whoa. That is that is literally very foreign <laughs> to me <laughs> as an American. <laughs> yeah, I remember it's one of the really things. It's really worth going to, you all. I mean, you know, it's it's a far journey, but but um it, it's it's mind bending to go there, and uh, so one of the things you mentioned in your book is how the Buddhists in Bhutan would uh, kind of collect the basic necessities of life and request it from people, just knocking on doors, asking for food, asking for basic clothing and materials, because they didn't have or use money in the same sense that churches in the United States use and request money, and. You were very skeptical of that in the beginning because these people were kind of begging and asking for this stuff. And you're like, are they really doing it? And then later in the book, you talk about trust with a Buddhist. And the person just said, you have to trust me. Like <laughs> trust is everything in Buddhism. Well, the, one of the principles of Buddhism is telling the truth. Okay. You tell what is, you know, you speak what is real, you know, you see what is real and you speak what is real and you speak um, and you speak with consideration and respect and you don't speak out of bad intentions. So that is, that's a core principle of, and it's called right speech. It's one of the, it's one of part of the, uh, the eightfold path of the Buddha. And so anyway, 
Um, I don't remember that I expressed any skepticism about, uh, you know, you mentioned that I sounded skeptical about what people asking for. Yeah. And I I don't remember where that was because um, I think, I think you've, you're also not, you're not talking about Bhutan, but you're talking about. uh, uh, Oh, is this Burma? Or Burma. Okay, Burma. Yeah. Uh, all right. So in Burma, um the monks do do alms rounds and they and that's part of the monastic tradition where they they're not allowed to go buy food for themselves. So they have to go ask for food. Okay. So that's part of a a total tradition in Burma. Okay. So was was that something that you're referring yes. to? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's true in all Buddhist countries. So it was true. It's true in Cambodia. Uh, it's it's not true. I did not see that uh, occurring in Bhutan. Okay. Uh, I did not see monks going from house to house to ask for food. That that they you know not all Buddhists do everything the same way, but in the Southeast Asian countries, uh, Laos, Thailand, you know Cambodia, all that. The, all those countries, the monks do this routine where they depend on the community for their sustenance. And and the community prepares food and as poor as they are, they give it to them. Yeah. I, I mean, I think in the United States, like when you see people requesting stuff off the street, you're, the first instinct is to avoid and not make eye contact because you think they're homeless and a beggar. And that is part of the daily life in the Southeast Asian countries. And it's just a one more very foreign concept that I think Americans could, and maybe most Westerners could get on board with. Never. It'll never happen. Well, you know, it all comes out of, it all comes out of the deep regard that the community has for the, for the, for the people leading the spiritual life. So it's a way for the people who who honor, who want to honor the monks who are, who are, who are not only practicing their own, their, their own Buddhism, but they're teaching and they're, and they're, they're holding, they're, they're holding this lineage of wisdom and they're valued for that. And so the way that the community can show the, so show how they value them is to feed them and also take care of their medical needs so that, so that in any given community in those Asian countries, the monks don't have to worry about getting medical care. They will be taken care of by their community. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful paradigm, and it's very a foreign paradigm to our uh, Western you know world as as you know. As yeah. I mean, it's it's very uh, we're very suspicious of people. I mean, I know there are idyllic communities in the United States where people take care of each other in a, in a wonderful, generous way, but it's pretty, you know, it's, it's not a very common thing. Yeah. No, as a nation, we're very individualistic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and Asia, it's very communal, you know, it's all about the community, you know, and I don't care whether you're it's even true in countries like China and Japan. I mean, it's, it's, it, they are very much about the, the, the body of people and not the individual. Yeah. Right. When Vietnam too is another one where that's true. You know, it's, it's, it's very community focused. If we can, I'd like to transition and talk about how 
travel in your eyes has changed because you've been traveling for close to 60 years and we've had very few guests that have been traveling that long. <laughs> and the 50s was a time where there were a lot less people and traveling was not as accessible. And so a lot of these touristy sites weren't touristy. Um, so if you can, please talk about what it was like when you first started traveling, how it is different now. Well, again, a, a, an image that pops into my mind is uh, I'm taking it from when I lived in Rome, which was back in 19, um, it was back in the, or my very beginning time when I was about 12. Um, and uh, we would go to the Colosseum my mother and I, and around the Colosseum, uh, we lived where our apartment was close to the Colosseum, but we, we had this ritual of going to the Colosseum and giving food to the, uh, giving uh, spare food to the wild cats. There were wild cats that were wandering all over that area. And, and there were these old Italian ladies that would come in their black outfits, you know, and they would be bringing their, you know, their kind of funny wrapped up uh, things of portions of pasta and putting them out for the cats. And we, I actually have photographs of that happening. Um, so we were right in the middle of, of, of real life there. I mean, this was 1957 or something like that. And, um, you know, it's, it's ancient history for, for a lot of people, that, that date. Um, and now when you go to the Coliseum, all you see are tour buses, uh, lines of people. Uh, I mean, it's, it's. The, the big dramatic thing, I think, for me, and I took my daughter and a couple of grandchildren to, to Italy um, a couple of summers ago. And, you know, it's the worst time in the world to go to Italy, but we had to do it because of school. Um, we we couldn't bear the idea that we had to, for everything that we wanted to do, we had to stand online for a really long time. Or when you went to the Trevi Fountain the you know the infamous Trevi, Trevi fountain where people throw the coins in and do all this you couldn't even get close to the fountain and um and the whole piazza around the fountain was was just masses of people mm -hmm. uh so yeah that's and in order to or to get into the vatican to go to the vatican museum and do all that you had to reserve and then you had to have a you know a guide take you in a group and you know it, in order to expedite your experience to get you in faster than if you were just trying to do it on your own devices by your own devices. So it's, it's become more complicated because there are more people yeah, and there's yeah. no, and there's no good system. I mean, um, I mean, this isn't true for all countries, but I'm just, Italy is popping up as an example because that's where it's so dramatic to me. I know you recently went to Machu Picchu, correct? Right. Mm -hmm. Did you go there earlier uh, in your in, in the fifties or sixties? I I had gone to Machu Picchu earlier, not not super long time before. So I went to Machu Picchu um, with this fellow that I lived with in northern New Mexico. With he and I went to Machu Picchu, and so that was in the nineties at some point because uh, that's the period of our of our time together. Um, and then. Um, we stayed in a in a hotel right inside the park. There's a there's a, a hotel, a nice hotel there, and we were able to get up in the morning, and go out and wander the park, 
without before all the groups started to come. Wow. And that was like that was like wow. magic. So that happened. That happened in like I say the nineties at some point. Now I went just recently with my daughter uh, and son-in-law. And that was just a, what a couple of years ago, and uh, and it was madness. There was this, you know, again, it's the buses, it's the lines, it's you can't you can't go anywhere without there just being masses of people, yeah. um, and you weren't allowed in. There wasn't the freedom that you had before. I had time slot, right? I mentioned that to people when I was there. I said that you know I used to, I, I remember being able to walk out my hotel and just wander wander along into the whole complex. I, wow. I remember what that felt like. It was like, it was astonishing. It, it, but is there a solution to it? Because it, there doesn't seem to be, because you can't, you don't want to stop. <laughs> that helps, but you don't want to stop people from having these experiences. You don't want to deter people from having these experiences. And so the only solution is to, create these barriers and these cues and these booths that you need to check into to preserve them. Because if you don't, if you just let people flood in, you, you lose the, you, you don't get preserved. They get damaged and overwhelmed. And so unfortunately, the only thing that I think we can do is make people stand in line, make people buy tickets for certain, certain time slots or make people have guides that, that accompany them. I don't, I don't know. I wish there was another solution, but I don't know how else we can simultaneously preserve these landmarks while, while promoting them because we want people to travel and experience because it helps people grow. Yeah. I think that, that it it is a matter of the numbers, the more people are going to these places, but you know, I've been to the Galapagos too, and and there they have it down. I mean, they they're able to control the numbers so beautifully, and they have very definitive rules of how how you behave in the Galapagos. You you might have heard about that, but you know, you you you're always under the under the control of a guide and several guides and naturalists and all the rest of it, and there and and you walk on certain paths and you are really you know you're forced to be respectful of their, of their rules for the sake of the wildlife and the, and the environment. It works. I mean, and, and, and they, and I think they limit the numbers of, of groups that come in at certain times. Now the Machu Picchu thing is another, that's, that's a little bit out of control as far as I'm concerned. I, I was very disappointed in the way it was when I went the last time because it really took away for me from enjoying the the magic of that place. That place is really an astonishing uh, geography and and place. And and with all these masses of people and and people trying to control all these people, you know, it's like it's 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 like being at a convention, and it's and and it's just too many. Um, so I don't I don't know what the answer is to that, but I know that that with the Galapagos they're really able to control it as they're able to control it in the way that the, the Bhutanese control it when you go to Bhutan. Raise the price. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, raise, yeah raise at the that price. point you just limit the accessibility. Yeah. Yeah. But but what's wrong with that? You know, in a way, I mean, is the there- only thing that I think is wrong with that is you have people who 
might not have the income, but want to learn and want to experience. Yeah. And then, and then they're, yeah. they can't only because they don't have the funds. Yeah. We had that conversation with Paulina on episode 14 regarding national parks, because they were going to be increasing the entrance fee to all national parks in the U S right. And we discussed whether or not that was a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. And I think it's, it's still a gray area. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There is no, there is no answer. I don't know because unfortunately though, I, if I had to pick one, I would pick raising the price. Yeah. Because if you don't, you, you essentially aid in their elimination and their deterioration. Right. And Mm -hmm. eventually their, and their significance. I don't know. It's the lesser of the two evils. Right. Right. Yeah. If you have to pick one, we yeah i don't know it's, yeah it's, it's, it's a I, tough one it is a tough one i mean it's it's you know we uh i'm all for everybody being able to have access to these magical places of great of where great learning is possible um and and i and i have to admit that you know the length of my you know my trajectory of my travels and from thus my experience makes me makes me more critical I mean, you know, and, and, you know, I'm, you know, when you get to be a certain age, you're a little set in your ways and you would, you would really rather have things be a certain way that's coherent and productive. And then you have to accept the fact, and you have to be Buddhist and accept the fact that, you know, that you can't control the universe. You can't control the numbers of people that are going places that you want to go. And, and um, I mean, I make, I can make conscious decisions to go, to places at uh, in the off season, you know, like um, to not go to Europe in the summer, you know, to, um, you know, not go to, uh, I mean, I went to Venice in the middle of the winter because I really wanted to, I wanted that experience of, of it being different. Um, But I have the freedom to do that because I don't have a job and, and, you know, and I have an independent income so I can go whenever I want. And I have I have this lovely freedom that many other people don't have, um, but um, I want people to, I do want people to travel and I want people to see the places like Machu Picchu and Galapagos and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but I think that it I, I think that it needs to become a lesson in sort of respect for the place where you are and and um, an ability to coexist with your fellow humans who are all trying to have the same experience you know right yeah i think respect is a large part of travel that a lot of people that do travel take advantage of and treat it as their own and they feel some entitlement to do whatever they want in those areas and i don't think that it i i know it's not sustainable there's no way that we can preserve all of these uh heritage sites and everyone has the ability to treat it like their own. No, no. I mean, one organization that I, that I thoroughly, you know, I support and love and from, and talk about all the time who do, who have such a kind of elevated consciousness about this is national geographic, you know, and they do amazing trips. Uh, I've been on some of their, you know, so their so-called organized trips. Uh, And, um, and they they do a great job of educating you. They do, you know, and, and keeping you and and reminding you of, of this sort of 
respectfulness factor, you know, and, and depending on where you are, whether you're in, you know, in an ancient site like Machu Picchu or uh, in a precious landscape like the Galapagos. Uh, so you learn a lot. Uh, I mean, but then again, there's a price to pay for that. So it's down to, you know, not everybody can afford to go on a National Geographic trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and and plenty of people do the the Inca Trail and go to, you know, go to Peru and all that and do the do the Machu Picchu thing, you know, on their own because you can. I mean, you don't mm-hmm. have to, you don't have to have a guide and a group and everything like that. Um, so the, the perfect resource is like a podcast, like, you know, the traveler's blueprint, for example, which is free and you can learn to be a mindful travel <laughs> traveler <laughs> and then, and then yeah. do the trip on your own. Shameless plug. <laughs> Etiquette etiquet of travel. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's very, um, it's interesting for me to notice. I mean, one of the things I notice all the time when I travel is the things that irritate me about other travelers. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, because, I, because naturally I think I'm perfect and I think I've got it down and I'm highly respectful and polite and all the rest of it. And then I watch these people go into great art museums and stand in front of masterpiece paintings and get their pictures taken and, and in other words, interfere with everybody else's experience of the art because they have to stand in front of a painting and get their picture taken. You know, it's one of my great peeves, you know, it's like, why can't you just stare at, why can't you look at the art, you know? why do you have to have your picture taken in front of it? That brings me to the next thing I want to talk about. And I was reading your chapter on Venice and I had the sudden realization that you and I may have been in Venice at the exact same time. Oh, mm -hmm. I was there. I did a three day weekend while I was studying abroad in Germany. And it was from January 25th to the 27th. Right. Were you did that did your two weeks there overlap at all? That's right. I was there. I was there till the end of January. I <sighs> went I think I went um I went I went for a whole two weeks and I and I know I came back at the end of January. I was just I just came across my journal. I was sorting through some old journals yesterday and I came came across the Venice journal and I saw the dates on it. Yeah, it's so that I was there that, that we were there at the same time. That's that is incredible, and yeah. I I really hope I wasn't one of those people trying to get my picture taken. <laughs> no, uh, you probably. But it, I don't think I was because I was there. I I roamed the city mostly by myself, and you're right. It was a cold, damp winter, and there was no one there. Yeah, and great. I love Marco Square was covered with like three or four inches of water because of the recent flooding, and it, yeah, it was really a weird experience. And I, I guess I need to go back in the summer because it did feel like a dead city at the time. Mm. It didn't feel like there were many natives. It, there were very few tourists. And it was kind of monotone in color, just washed out with grays and blacks. Yeah. Mm. See, I love all that stuff. Um, <laughs> I, also love, I also love color, but... Um, you know, I had been to Venice countless times in tourist in in tourist uh, periods. You know, periods of tourism, and uh, and hated it because I never could kind of figure Venice out. I never could feel like I understood the geography as, as well. I couldn't feel like I I got a sense of of what it was like to to be an inhabitant of that city, uh, which is a, it's a unique city, of course. You know, um, but you know, it's it's 
it, it was very lonely. And one of the things I was interested in experiencing was that sense of being this lonely kind of alone traveler and how that was going to feel. Um, Cause I spent, you know, every day walking with my camera, you know, on, uh, around my, you know, neck and my notebook and it, it was very, it got very, very lonely. Two weeks was a long time to do that. Uh, and there were a lot of things that were closed in Venice too at that time because because it was the period after Carnivale, and you know it was it was there was this inter, no it was the period between the Christmas holidays and Carnivale, so it was like this interim period where the Venetians all retreated and they closed up store, they closed up you know museums, they closed up businesses, they were just like on holiday, yeah, yeah, I, I, that's, that's so funny though. Seven years later, and we're talking on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, uh, I, I was really, um, I had a lot of fun finding things that I didn't, you know, expect to find. I mean, um, and ruminating about the benefits of getting lost or, or not getting lost or discovering things you didn't know you were going to discover because if you didn't worry about where you were going, or how to get there because in Venice everything is confusing in terms of the geography. Yeah, uh, you're going to get lost all the time, and it, and then it, you know, and then you have to realize it doesn't really matter when you get lost. And it was I, great. I, the fun. That's, it was yeah, great to I get lost. Sort of to, metaphorical level where I realized that, you know, so what's the worst thing about getting lost? You know, in in general, you know, it's, it, eventually you find yourself. Um, right. And it, it, it's just the you know what's getting why it bothers people getting lost. I think it bothers them because they feel like they're out of control. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, if you don't know where you are exactly, you know, geographically, then you'd have less control. Yeah. I already feel my anxiety coming on just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh -huh. I, but I, I do agree with, especially cities like Venice. Uh, I learned that in Dubrovnik to just, you know, my Except. wife and I would just, yeah, you just go and you just walk and you explore and you, you look for new things and you just try to, you go out of your way to remove yourself from what you already know about the city and try to find something new. And like, that's your priority. Let's walk until we find something new and interesting that we didn't know existed. And, right. and you kind of get lost in that process. And like that, that in and of itself is fun. And cities like Dubrovnik and Venice, you're not going to get really, you're not going to get lost. You know, you'll, you're, you're in a walled in or, you're, yeah, you're, you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. Do it. Do it. The experience is worth it. So, Mag, before we get into some of your, into where people can find the book and some of your other social media and websites, we have been doing this rapid fire question segment and Bob and I alternate asking 12 questions uh, uh -huh. and they are partially related to travel. Some is just to get to know you better. Okay. So please answer Honestly, and whatever comes to your mind first. Bob, you want to start? All righty. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Maggie, ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. So what is the first word that comes to your mind when you think of the word travel? <laughs> Freedom. What home comfort do you miss the most while traveling? My own bed. That's a common answer. Uh, if you could swim in any liquid, what would it be? The, the salt water of the ocean. 
Ooh. Right. Uh, pick two animals that you would love to see fight. Oh gosh, I don't want to see animals fight. Or uh, or play. Oh yeah, okay, two cats. <laughs> Would you rather drink wine or coffee the rest of your life? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll go with wine. Okay. Please say hello in your favorite language. Buongiorno. If you can travel with anyone in the world, living or dead, who would it be? Uh, my granddaughter, Morgan. What is one item remaining on your bucket list? Uh, the pyramids, Egypt. Mm. Who is your biggest celebrity crush? The Dalai Lama. Ah. <laughs> we have one. not had that one. <laughs> no, no. This may be a tough one, but if you could... If you were stuck in one city for the rest of your life, which city would you choose? Oh my God. <laughs> That's really hard. Um, I want to say Florence, but nice. I also want to say Paris. So I'm sorry. I just. <laughs> <laughs> we can't make these too easy. Um, so if you owned a yacht, what would you name it? Rosie. Who is your favorite Traveler's Blueprint podcast host? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not fair. <laughs> I think you should probably just go with the person who asked the question. That's you, right, Elliot? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Elliot, he's, he's suffering for, for answers, so I don't really answers, Elliot. No, that, I think you were the first one. <laughs> that's can it I, those are all of them yeah that's it yeah can i can i ask why rosie for the yacht just the first thing that came to my mind okay <laughs> why 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 uh, i was just I, curious i didn't know if it was the name of a close friend or relative no my my oldest friend in the world a person i've known since we were four she she had a great dog, a golden retriever called Rosie who died recently. So I guess maybe Rosie's the image of Rosie popped into my mind, but um, uh, yeah, it was just one of those lovely things that just bubbled up. And yeah. it's, a very, it's a very affectionate name to me. Mm -hmm. It feels very affectionate. I think it'd be a good name for a yacht. I could see you sailing the Mediterranean, Rosie. stopping in, uh, <laughs> stopping in <laughs> Rosie. Yeah. I, guess, I, I don't think I could sail much in a yacht at <laughs> all. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're too con too confining. Yeah. yeah. So, um, all right, Mag. So before we let you go, please tell our listeners where they can download or buy your book, where you can where they can find you on social media, your website, basically anything that they can do to research you and learn more about what you do. All righty. Uh, let's see. Okay, my website is uh, magdiamond.com. M A G D I M O N D. It's you know spelt without an A. Um, there's a ton of information. I have a blog and all kinds of things. I have my guided meditation that's for offer there, um, which is really free, free right? lovely yeah. thing. It's mm -hmm. called, it's bowing to, let's see, it's, what is it? It's magdiamond.com slash gift, I think. Anyway, 
you go to the website and you would find it. Um, I have a Facebook page uh, that's uh, facebook.com slash travels with mag. That's my Facebook page. Uh, I'm at diamond mag on Twitter. Um, I'm doing a weekly author discussion group on Facebook live uh, these days. It's every Thursday at 1.30 Pacific time. Um, it's a lovely thing that's been going on for a couple of months now with different writers. And that's at facebook.com slash travels with Mag. Again, it's my on my author page. So that's something I'm encouraging people to come and listen to because it's a, it's been a very lively uh, little forum for uh, conversation. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, I'm going to have to jump on that as well. Yes. Yeah. It's it's about a forty minute you know deal every Thursday and um, all kinds of different writers talking about we're talking about lots of different ideas but a lot of it is is the it's the theme of writing and the execution of writing and the kind of vision that writers hold you know interesting the Traveler's Blueprint Blueprint currently has a uh, travel book in production so maybe yeah to uh to join you yeah it's yeah. called it's called uh writers coming together that's the name of my program right okay do you have any upcoming trips planned any post-pandemic <laughs> well i had a great trip to spain all all on the books until until the pandemic um i had bought this trip uh, at an uh charity auction and it was going to start in madrid and go to southern spain um with my daughter my youngest daughter who uh, who loves to travel with me, and we'd never done a trip just with ourselves and not with children, with young people. So, I think the Spain trip will be the next trip that does happen, and when we are allowed to get on an airplane and fly away, oh, I can hardly bear the idea of how much time it's going to be. But yes, uh, want to go to southern Spain, Granada and and um, Seville and all that. Um, right. Been there a long time ago, but. I want to have some of that great Spanish food. Yes. Yeah, I miss I miss that very much. Yeah. And I have to bone up on my Spanish first cuz I I'm very I'm very keen on being able to talk to people when it's at all feasible. So I I always get you know I kind of try to bone up on And you're lot. you are fluent in Italian, right? You're pretty fluent, yeah. And I mean that should help with your Spanish, I think. And I it does, definitely. I mean when I've gone to Mexico, I've I've been able to use, you know, you know, Spanish sort of fairly well. Uh, my French is very kind of, you know, turkey jerky kind of thing, but I can cope in French. Uh, it's just takes me a while. Um, I probably have an atrocious French accent, by, by <laughs> but I don't care. I just think it's, that's one of the things I think is important is to uh, try to communicate with people and not just assume they're going to speak English to you, you know. Yeah. Be mindful of where you are and who yeah, you're meeting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, those that's the that's the vision. We'll we'll hope that it can you know emerge sooner rather than later. Um, I have a year credit on my on my airfare that um, so I'm hoping that that bodes well for sometime next year. Yeah. Well, we're hoping for you too. Thank you so much for coming on today. Bowing to elephants. If you're listening to this, go buy it. Go read it travel the world, learn to be a mindful traveler. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, you can get bowing to elephants on Amazon, but I urge people to buy it through their independent bookstores or 
IndieBound, uh, which is a website that tells you how to order from independent bookstores. So uh, I'm a big, you know, supporter of independent bookstores as as opposed to the the massive Amazon. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. If you're listening okay. to this, go check it out. Ellie and I both read it, loved it. Yeah. Uh, Mag, thank I you again. Liked it. Thanks a lot. Yeah. It was really fun. This book was was beautifully written, and it's something. This was a very different book and different information as related to travel than anything else I've ever picked up before. Because what I realized reading her book and now talking to her was that travel isn't always romantic. It isn't always a positive a positive experience. In the beginning for Meg, she's associating travel with hardships with her family, with the, you know, with the relationships with her mother and things like that. So it was really interesting to see the the revelation and the progress Meg had as a person growing up on the road with all of these different, you know, new architecture, new new relationships in foreign countries and how it shaped who she was and being able to talk to her today and have her reflect on those experiences with us on the podcast was really cool, really insightful and just a brand new uh, avenue for us to to explore and learn about as it relates to travel. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, she talked about when we think about travel, we often think it's very romantic, not in the sense of like love and stuff, but in the sense of opening yourself up, new experiences that are good for you. And she definitely <laughs> showed that there was another side of it. But it was a great honor to be able to talk to her. as, And she is a very down-to-earth traveler. And of all of the teachings that we like between Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, I think in her book, she really talked about how Buddhism is one of the best teachings because it doesn't, it focuses on the self and morality from within. And it is why a lot of Westerners seek out Buddhism. And Bob, I don't know if you know of these two terms. I learned about them really recently. And I think they're really cool. One is omnism, which is basically a respect for all religions, but not thinking any religion is perfect. And then the other one is syncretism, which is applying teachings from all different kinds of religions into one. And basically it's this thing, it's inclusivity of all religion and acceptance of all religions in merging it into one religion on its own. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know, I, I, I'm not familiar with either of, the, either of those terms, but I think I'm familiar with that idea or that philosophy, right? Uh, I, neither one of us are very religious, but <clears throat> I think we both agree that a lot of the teachings in, let's say, Christianity, for you know, that's the one we're most familiar with, the the moral compass that it tries to set you on and all, all those things we, we use, right? I, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm a very moral person without religion. And that's yeah that's really interesting uh, and it's it's one thing to think about religion and you can be spiritual without having a religion right yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah. i think so i think i think you really you definitely can yeah that's that's interesting it's something i need to learn more about i actually yeah. have the book waking up by sam harris which yeah. teaches you how to be spiritual without religion yeah. i have it on audio or audible i haven't gotten to it yet i read that last year or two years ago I, I enjoyed it it was a very different reading experience for me yeah i listened to his his meditation 
app every single morning now. So I have Sam Harris in my ear every day for 10 minutes. Nice. I, after my workout, I sit down and I listen to him. And it's all about controlling your consciousness and understanding your consciousness. And it really allows you to sort of purge your your mind of, of bad, I don't want to say bad thoughts, overwhelming thoughts, stressful thoughts, yeah. and, and sort of uh, categorizing them and making sure you are in control of those stressful thoughts and they are not in control of you. Yeah. Amanda's been listening to, um, it's a meditation headspace. Mm-hmm. And I'm familiar with it. Yep. She's been listening to that for, I think, two years now um, prior to falling asleep. And she really, really loves it. It's basically uh, mindfulness every evening for 10 minutes. That's that's what I do, except in the morning. And that's essentially what Sam Harris is. Yeah. And the the thing that, I don't know, meditation, I guess, get, gets a bad rap, but I think it's coming around as being more legitimate. Like some people, I think, look at it as hocus pocus nonsense, whatever you might, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the thing that I think people should consider is just like you want to work out your muscles and you need to work out your body, your mind is similar. And that the more that you practice something, and the more you work it out, the better you are in control of it. And so mm-hmm. that's sort of the way I look at it. Meditation is really just working out my mind and and being able to manipulate it however I want it to be and not allowing my emotions to take control and having to follow the lead of my emotion. It's very, very cool. Very fun. It stuff. is. It's really interesting. Uh, so as you're listening to this, take a moment to subscribe to us on YouTube or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. If you've already subscribed, thank you. And maybe consider us giving a rating. If you've already subscribed and have given us a rating, I mean, there's nothing else you can do except for keep being awesome. And then reach out to us if you have some suggestions on guests, if you have suggestions on how to improve the show, or if you just want to chat, let us know. We're happy to talk. And tune in next week.